0: I am so glad to be with you again this afternoon or this evening. For those of you who are waiting for an update about the state of the Dixon Hall household (laughs) and the financial ruin we were going to face at the hands of our five-year-old who had found the code to our Amazon account, I am pleased to announce that Jeff has landed in Dallas. The five-year-old has been secured and the password on the Amazon account has been changed. (laughs) We are unsure if we will face foreclosure, but if we are, we will have lots and lots of Dora the Explorer movies. (laughs) I am more comfortable speaking like this both in clothing, um, as well as the ability to do what I truly believe God has called me to do, which is to be an academic. I am well aware that some of you don't know what I'm talking about tonight. And I'm aware that some of you do know what I'm talking about tonight. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, I wanna give you fair warning. Uh, and allow you to run as necessary. (laughs) The question that I'm going to ponder tonight is, is the
1: alt-right right? right? Is the alt-right
0: right? I'll stop. You can run if you'd like. The fact that I would pick this topic has confounded you, some of you. It's given pause for others. One of the things that I probably should have shared with David before I accepted the invitation was that Bishop Cynthia Harvey, who has known me for at least 15, 20 years, calls me a disruptor. And that's really, I think, an apt term for who I am. But as I explained yesterday, I truly believe that to be culturally intelligent, to really want to learn other people's languages
1: means that
0: we have to be willing to ask sincere questions, not leading questions, Not
1: questions with hidden judgments in them, but sincere questions. So, for over the last five years of my
0: life, I have dedicated my life to understanding, my academic life, to
1: understanding the thesis of whiteness. Better framed, it's really
0: summed up in this question What does it mean? To be white. I will tell you that I have studied a number of subjects both in seminary and graduate school and none of them is as hard and more compelling to study and answer than this question. I want to give you an example of the complexity that I'm talking about on our campus part of our cultural intelligence initiative is that we really want to teach and be practical in terms of providing everybody on campus a means of understanding each other's language we're moving beyond traditional diversity and inclusion that means you appreciate people's diversity but you don't know how to work with diverse people and so what we've said is we're going to let each of the top five demographic groups in our school
1: write a tourist guide for each other. Because we all have a cultural language to learn, and
0: we all have a cultural language to teach. And so on our campus, we have five groups that are of our top demographic areas. It's African-Americans, Hispanic, and Latinos, Asian and uh, Middle Eastern, and what's number four, what's number four, you would think, I would know this, um, it's four or five. Oh, and Latino, and white. Now, first of all, we make a distinction because most diversity and inclusion programs don't include white.
1: They assume that white people are the ones who always have to learn and have nothing to teach. But as we live more
0: complex and segregated lives, I think that's really a misnomer. And so I've asked a collective of students, staff, and faculty to come together in each of these demographic groups to write these cultural guides. Now, in five months, the African-Americans were completed. In six months, the Asian and Arab cluster was completed. I'm going to tell you, that was a difficult haul because, um, frankly, if you don't know much about Asia, you don't realize how dicey just calling someone an Asian is. That between South Korea, North Korea, India, China, Malaysia, Bangladesh, those things are different. And for most of us, we don't think so. so. But even that cluster was able to get done in six months. In eight months, the Hispanic and Latino group was done. The white group, well, one and a half years later, they still haven't written a word. Because the biggest issue, and these include some of our Perkins professors, our engineers, our scholars of history, students, staff, the biggest question they couldn't get beyond was, what does it mean to be white? Curiously enough, the leader of the group said, Maria, can you help us? I was like, sure, I'll tell you what it means to be white. <laughs> Had a lot of experience at it. I believe there are a number of reasons for this inability of my colleagues to be able to name and define who they are. Because I think for most people with white skin, they have come to believe that's what it means to be white. Yet I will tell you that my blonde-haired and blue-eyed colleague from South Africa would object. I would tell you that my colleague who is a rabbi from upstate New York would object. I would tell you that the famed cabaret singer Carol Channing of Hello Dolly fame, who had white skin, yet even at 97 years old, still does not consider herself
1: white. Let that one sink in. Yes, Carol Channing is black. So if white skin in America doesn't make you white, what does? I would venture to say that it does seem to
0: me that the entire election of 2016 was really a battle
1: over what it meant to be white in America. The rest of us were just bystanders. Well, this question has led me to a number of readings of intellectuals that answer this
0: not so nicely and polite question. It has left me into the genre called the alt-right. Now, I know that for many of you, my very saying of the name alt-right has moved you one of two places. My friends on the left have already banished anybody associated with this into a whole lump of group of people they would call deplorable, who they would see as no different than the Ku Klux Klan. My friends on the right think that these are a bunch of uh, individuals who are incendiary, unnecessary, and not
1: helpful in polite discourse, and wish they would simply tone it down. Both positions, I think, are unrealistic, unreliable, and unsophisticated,
0: because they are rooted in a fundamental dishonesty about America, race, and human nature. My liberal friends don't like to admit their own complicity in the racial history of America. And my conservative friends don't want to admit that the alt-right would be fine with them if they just weren't so dang provocative. I have found that my colleagues in the alt-right have something that neither my friends on the right or the left have.
1: They have a willingness to be authentic in their conversations about race. Their
0: writings, honed by some of the finest schools in the Ivy League, are not only provocative, they're rhetorically powerful. Tonight, what I want to do is advance two arguments that have come up in my most recent readings. And I'll have to tell you that one of the arguments is complex, but it's not that difficult for me to wrestle with. As an academic, I can wrestle with it and lift it. My students call this my heavy lifting outfit. They know that when I'm coming in, this is, we're going to take lots of notes. And I've had lots of coffee, so I would just say, be afraid. But the second question, the question that I will end with tonight, is one that has perplexed me to my soul and has caused me many sleepless nights and has caused me to question my own call. The first question is offered by Joseph King, a Columbia graduate, a lawyer, a scholar of Western Europe history, as well as Asia. He is the author of the book Awoke, which is considered to be the Bible of the alt-right movement. King's argument, crafted extremely well, is one of a patriotic concern.
1: So I ask you to listen to it as a patriotic concern. Here's what Joseph
0: writes. A country is more than a place to live and work. It is a group of people tightly bound together by blood and culture. For most of its history, the United States was essentially a European nation. Its people were English-speaking Christians of European descent, who despite their differences, shared broadly similar values. Americans respected and understood hard work, humility, honesty, and personal responsibility. They sang the national anthem without fear of offending others and took pride in the great accomplishments of their country. On Christmas, they wished each other Merry Christmas without even a second thought. They trusted their neighbors and rarely bothered to lock their doors at night. There were one people. Now, a common ethnicity is not a requirement for nationhood. But at the very least, a nation should share a common culture. Multiculturalism has paralyzed the assimilation process that immigrants normally undergo. So instead of requiring new immigrants to learn English, we build bilingual public schools, and we write public brochures in multiple languages. We bend over backwards to accommodate immigrants, but are forbidden to demand that they respect our culture. Multiculturalism encourages a cultural balkanization of our society. There are entire neighborhoods and towns in this country that look as if they were transplanted from the third world. If Americans don't share an ethnic bond or even a cultural bond, what does it mean to be American? We are no longer a people, but a hodgepodge of peoples who live and work on the same parcel of land without any sense of unity. We are Asians, Europeans, Blacks, and Hispanics who happen to live on the American continent. In a balkanized country, identity politics predominate as people become more tribal. Mutual trust decreases.
1: Democracy becomes dysfunctional. And we cease to be a nation. Hmm. Mr. King's writings, if you didn't know who had written them, and I had
0: not shared with you his background, some of you might readily say, well, yeah, he's right. Back in the old days, we did this and we did this and we understood
1: personal responsibility. We worked hard. We were productive. A man knew his place. A woman knew her place. Children did not run amok.
0: They certainly didn't take their parents' Amazon codes. (laughs) We got along well, and all was right with the world. Now, I'm going to tell you, honestly, I, I look at King's writing, and I you know I sit there and I go, "You know what? There is a nostalgia here, But really, his argument is not that unique, and it has a historical context to it. The problem with King's argument. And I hear it. And I think I agree with the last part of it. That we are becoming more tribal. Our democracy is failing. I don't think it's because that we have people
1: who come from different countries. I think there's other reasons for that. But what I find troubling about King's analysis is
0: the very premise that he places on the weight on it on immigration and the slippery slope of perfect whiteness. Immigration and the slippery slope of perfect whiteness. I think what King does not realize is that the truth of the matter is that all settlers weren't the same when they came
1: over on the boat. Everybody who had white skin was not the same.
0: That the vast majority of people who were sent over to the New World were not the landed gentry. The landed gentry stayed in London and they sent
1: over the poor people, the vagabonds, the thieves, the prostitutes, and the 'er ne'er-do-wells. What they called America was a wasteland for wasted people. And so it's right there
0: in that little piece of information that we pick up
1: that all white skin is not equal. Some white skin was able to be sacrificed. I think the other thing that I would point out is that immigration doesn't become a
0: major issue for us really until the 1783, 1784. This is when we begin to start getting our alien and sedition acts in which we start trying to say, okay, who can be a citizen? And we become a little concerned because everybody doesn't seem like they're coming from England. As a matter of fact, they weren't. And our problem was a whole group of people called the Irish. And so we decided that we needed to have a law about how long it took you to be a citizen. So it went from five years
1: to 15 years. And the other thing was you had to be Christian which the Irish were not. In the 1880s, the
0: problem with immigration got even more problematic because all of a sudden, here comes all of Europe. Italians, Jews, Poles, Serbians, Hungarians, Greek. The problem with these individuals, some would say, is that they dragged down the standard of living of the American workman. Woodrow Wilson was so concerned about all of these individuals who came over with white skin that he said, I'm concerned about the biological threat that these
1: people pose in creating an inferior stock of people. We ain't talked about the slaves yet. I'm just making sure you know that. (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt, while we may remember him for a big stick, he was concerned about other kinds of sticks.
0: Roosevelt had a campaign against birth control because he had a fear that immigrants would replace old American families. They were trying to figure out... Why couldn't Northeastern families produce enough children? Over the years, he just kept telling what he called the Native American families, those people who lived in New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, (laughs) Pennsylvania, and Virginia, those Native Americans,
1: that they needed to have more babies. In
0: 1894 the Immigration Restriction League, formed in Boston and advocated for new federal laws and said that maybe if we didn't have immigrants,
1: more white people would have white babies. Still talking about people with white skin. Throw into this a whole class of individuals who are living in the South, those who came to work
0: the land, who are displaced because of chattel slavery, who become the sharecroppers, and then when that industry changes, become something known as the sandhillers, or the self-destructive clay eaters, or by the term we know them most, poor white trash. These entire individuals become to known as lazy. They will become looked at as diseased. The word white trash first appears in our literature in 1821, but by 1850 it was commonly used. Observers would say that their skin looked yellowish and had a tinge that was tallow. They were seen as odd. They were seen as highly inbred, addicted to alcohol and dirt. White trash southerners were classified as a race of their own. Critics said that poor whites had fallen below African slaves on the scale of humanity.
1: Now, what I want you to keep in mind is these are the rhetorical framings of whiteness about people with white skin. One of the problems that the
0: landed gentry would have about white trash is that they said these people were promiscuous. These people were drinkers. They couldn't be trusted with money. They couldn't be trusted with time. And one of the things that between the 18, 1821 and really 1920, there becomes a great concern about the impurity of the American stock. That we actually begin to talk about breeding human beings for the strongest strain. And what several scholars try to do is they try to figure out which strains of whiteness do they need to get rid of. And they determine that only if you were from a Teutonic tribe,
1: Germany, Sweden, Denmark, or England, if you came from anywhere else, you were from an inferior stock. These were the four
0: countries that would be allowed instant American citizenship.
1: Every other group from Europe, Polish, Czechoslovakian, Hungarian, Bosnian, Italian, Greek,
0: all of those wonderful mixtures that are sitting out and happened to be the people that helped
1: found Oklahoma were not considered U.S. citizens. They were considered a blight, a possible diseasing of American stock. One of the things that remains interesting to me is that these are not the kind of conversations that white folks have because the reality of this is it creates concern about who's really white and did I make the cut? (laughs) So when King says this whole
0: idea of we were all European, We were all Christian. He's fantasizing and romanticizing about a reality that did not exist in our founding. It did not exist in the 1800s. It did not exist up to 1947 when finally the Hungarians and the Czechoslovakians and everyone else associated with not Western Europe was finally considered a citizen in America. The only reason you're no longer called Czech or Hungarian, Bosnian, and that you lost all of that native language, those rituals, those traditions, is because we were told that we were going to have a great melting pot.
1: And in that melting pot, we were all going to become Americans. But look at what it took to
0: become an American. It meant to lose your native language, it meant to lose your traditions, it meant to lose your identity. And you erase it to become something called white, which is a uniquely American phenomenon. Only in America, as the great Don King, the theologian, would say. And so this becomes problematic because when you're trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be white in America, you almost have to ask,
1: well, which decade? Under which president? Under which Supreme Court ruling? I was sharing with the folks yesterday, that the Supreme Court
0: finally weighed in. We actually have cases about defining whiteness. And the Supreme Court decided that being a Caucasian didn't make you white. What they said was, being white is whatever the common white man says it is.
1: Oops, there it is. And so King's argument, to me,
0: is one that, you know, I wrestle with. And I'm able to dismiss it quite easily. I mean, you know, academically, historically, it's problematic. And so for many of you, you may say, eh, eh whatever. That's
1: that liberal education. But to me, as I talk to many of my students, as one student said, I've always wondered why I didn't have an identity. I didn't know where I came from. I would just check the box white and wondered why I was a color and not a heritage. And when you begin to think about that,
0: what you begin to think about is the family histories that have been destroyed in an effort to become assimilated to something called whiteness. You think about, some of you may have grandparents who immigrated who said, no, 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 we don't talk like that anymore. We're in America. No, no, we're changing your name because we're in America. No, no, we don't cook like that anymore because we're in America. And some of you wish you had those recipes right now. So the second question that has bothered me, and and I'm going to leave you with, so it hopefully will bother you, (laughs) comes from Jared Taylor. Jared Taylor is another one of the alt-right's great writers. To me, he's the one that is the most provocative. He is the one that is the most rhetorically sound. He is the one that gets up under my skin. Not gets up under my skin because I want to debunk him, but because he makes me think. And so let me, as we close in on the end of our time together, read what he writes. We insist that diversity is a great strength, but for most white Americans, this is lip service. They rarely seek diversity in their private lives. Instead, living on homogeneous islands that look nothing like the cultural mix this country has become. Anti-discrimination laws ensure integration at work and at school and in public. But at a dinner party, a poker game, a wedding reception, a church service, a backyard barbecue, it is rarely a multiracial mosaic. If generation after generation of Americans they tend to segregate themselves, is it possible that the expectations for integration were not that reasonable? If most people prefer the company of people like themselves, why do we continue to insist
1: that they deny that preference? That quote sent me to my bed. Because Taylor
0: is saying something very true. That, yes, you and I have the right to go to school together. You and I have the right to live in the same neighborhoods. But the reality we all know
1: is that we choose not to. That we are still in a state
0: of segregation in which 91% of whites hang out with whites and 80-something percent of blacks hang out with blacks and 60-something percent percent of Hispanics hang out with Hispanics. That if we look at the way even my good liberal, so-called woke friends live their lives, they still make decisions about school and where they live based on how good
1: the school is or meaning how white the school is. African Americans are not that different either because we have psychic
0: dissonance about being too far away from people who look like us because
1: we're afraid of being rejected by you, so we need to make sure we can get back to where we might feel
0: safe. And so what we are finding is that even if African Americans have substantial wealth, they are moving back into neighborhoods that you would not expect to find wealthy African Americans. And so what we know is that class is no longer a determination of integration. That we are all falling back into our tribes. And that our argument is, I just want to be around my people. Now, we're not going to say that because that sounds so... Sounds so 1960-ish. But the reality is, what I would ask you right now is, is he wrong? If we examine each of our lives, is he lying about our tendency of who we eat with, who we party with, who we hang out with? Is he telling the truth? And if he's telling the truth, then why in the Scooby-Doo do we keep trying to say we need to be integrated?
1: Maybe it's time for black folks just to say y'all aren't that into us. Maybe I need to recognize that we don't need to
0: do cultural intelligence. We need to be nice to each other at the office, but then we all go back and we do what we want to do. Maybe, David, there's no sense in having this discussion because at the end of the day, we've had 30-something years of laws. We've had 30-something years of diversity and inclusion training. We've had 30-something years of excellence being seen in every shape, color, creed, and we still don't want to hang out with each other. Now, if this were my child coming to me and saying, Mommy, I've done all this and the kids don't want to sit with me, what would you tell your
1: kid? Well, honey, find somebody else to sit with. If the church is still struggling
0: with being segregated, then why the heck are we so surprised when the rest of the world is still struggling with it? Could it be that we
1: don't want to solve it, really? Could it be, we don't mind giving it lip service because it makes us look humane. But the truth of the matter is, maybe we don't want to be the beloved community that we're called to be that Pentecost mandates that we are. And so the question I leave you with tonight is whether Jarrett Taylor has a point. Could this alt-right writer be right?